Well, good morning, everybody. If I had the chance to meet you, my name is Paul McKenzie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it gets to be my privilege to uh, consider God's Word with you together, um, uh, while Chris is actually out of town um, with 28 others uh, from the student ministry, a parent-student trip, headed down to the Dominican Republic, and so he, they left uh, yesterday, yeah, yesterday, because they set the alarm off at 4 a.m. That's how I got the phone call. Um, they left yesterday, and they'll be back uh, next Saturday, uh, so our prayers are with them uh, and excited for him and for Holland and for all the other uh, parents and kids who are on that one uh, together. I don't know if you're the type of person who likes to um, uh, look forward to something in order to get through what's immediately in front of you. Um, you know, I feel like I first related to this as, a, as probably a student, where it was always like, you know, at least you had the promise of summer, right, that helped you get through the spring semester. Um, or I don't know if any of y'all have grandparents like my grandparents that um, when we would eat at their house, you know, we'd sit around the big round table, but always in the middle on some like pedestal or glass container or something was the dessert. And so it was like you had something to look forward to, so you got through your, had to finish your meal, right? Um, I think that there's something strategic about this. Or maybe you relate to this image, which my kids certainly relate to. It's amazing how well-behaved they are uh, during a road trip when they know that, oh, a little bit down the road, there's a possibility uh, for a treat. Um, but again, I don't know what it is, but something in our natures that tends to like something to look forward to to get us through the moment today. And truthfully, I feel a little bit about that with First Samuel. David is really the dessert that has always been on my mind that's made me eat the meal of reading through Saul. Truthfully, it was just always that comparison. Saul was never somebody that I fully related to. It was always a struggle. And I always was just like, I want to get through this so that we can finally meet David. And then that's where the real stuff is. Um, and, you know, some of that probably comes because as if you've been studying along with us, Saul, um, you know, he's, it's even when you try to give him the benefit of the doubt, it's, it's really even hard or it's just not always clean. At best, he seems ignorant of some things, but at worst, there's just plain defiance, and he gets a whole lot of things wrong. Um, and so it was always that he was a struggle to relate to, but David, for some reason, I could. But yet, even upon further reflection, that maybe isn't even a fair comparison either, because yet Saul had his struggles with it, but so does David. It's not like David was, uh, just went through life without any, any mess-ups or any hardships or any failures of his own. And so maybe it is just a little bit unfair of me uh, to disqualify Saul when I don't also then would turn naturally and disqualify David. You know, when Pike Weisner, the pastor of First Baptist Downtown, preached uh, a while back on a sermon series on David, his first uh, sermon, he titled, uh, A Heart After God, and then subtitled, well, it's complicated. But yeah, we'll go with that. It's a little complicated in there. Because even when we think about it, even in the exercise, if you complete the phrase with the other characters of the stories, what are the first ones that come to mind? David and Goliath. Yeah, the one we love, the one we herald, the one that is the champion story. But then also, similarly, there's other names like David and Bathsheba, all right? Almost as equally loose on our tongues is one of his greatest feats and yet one of his most horrific failures. And so again, this is David. This is, um, this is what it would be a little bit. If we were going to disqualify Saul, we should probably also disqualify David. 
But it may be that we easily relate to David because of the sheer volume we have in Scripture about it. Um, Dr. Charles uh, Swindoll, in his um, commentator, in his book on, on David, um, actually says that there's no other character in the Old Testament who gets as much real estate or references uh, or time in Scripture commenting just on them and their life. In fact, he points out that we have 66 chapters just on David's life and the narrative of his history. That doesn't even include the over at, at minimum 70 psalms that he personally wrote that also communicate to us a good deal about his life. And in fact, in the New Testament, we actually run into 59 New Testament references over and back to David. So it may be that we, uh, we, we relate to him because we just have this wealth of knowledge about him. But where we're going to start this morning is we're going to start at the beginning with David and really at his introduction. And it may not be the introduction one would hope for, but we'll get there. I'm going to read um, from 1 Samuel chapter 16 from verse 1 through 13. Uh, in reverence of God's word, I'm going to invite you all to stand. Um, we're going to be reading out of the ESV version. So if you have a phone with you or a Bible with you, uh, you can turn it on and, and navigate over that. If you don't and you want a physical copy to remind you, you can grab one of the uh, Bibles out of the racks uh, in front of you and follow along. But again, starting in verse 1. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came and met him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. But when they came, he looked on Elib and thought, Surely... The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks to the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. For this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, the very words of God. Let's pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand. That in understanding, that we may believe. And that in believing, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience. Seeking your honor and glory and all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Y'all may be seated. 
As I said in the intro, if you've been studying along with us, um, we've been considering the life uh, and kingship of Saul, and this really marks a very pivotal transition uh, in the book of First, and especially even in the books of Second Samuel. Because um, really what we're going to do is we're going to see Samuel's character kind of being capstone, and he'll begin to diminish. We're going to see conflict now between the former anointed and the newly anointed David and Saul, and then we'll see um, really in Second Samuel when, when, uh, when David is established and anointed as soul king. Um, last week, we, we considered, if you, were, if you weren't here, I highly recommend you going back and watching the last two weeks um, through Chris's preaching. Um, we saw uh, at the end of the last chapter, we saw God remove uh, and revoke his anointing um, from Saul when he failed to obey with the destruction of the Amalekites. We ended with Samuel actually taking on the role of executioner, not just messenger, but the role of executioner, and going in and chopping to bits the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And then at the end, we have this parting of ways. We have Samuel and we have Saul and we have them going their two separate ways. And while there was a lot of tension in that story and there was a lot of confrontation between Saul uh, and Samuel, it, en- it ended last week with Samuel walking away grieving over Saul. And it's interesting because it's that same note of grief that we pick up in this chapter right now. We don't know how much time has passed. We don't know if this is a long time or a little time, but it is clear that there has been some time. They have fully separated, and now that they have separated, Samuel is still grieving over Saul. So in the first part of verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? I find this a really interesting concept. Um, This really doesn't feel like a rebuke here. This doesn't feel like the Lord rebuking Samuel. Um, This sounds more conversational. So he's not telling him, you shouldn't be grieving anymore. He's just starting a question, starting a conversation, addressing Samuel's grief, and really coming to a place of how it should end or transition with a commandment of joy. And it seems really conversational because there's no no punishment or discipline that comes with um, uh, this this questioning of, of Samuel's grief over Saul. Um, and, and really, uh, because I think I got to, when, you, when we read Samuel and the Lord's conversation interacting and seeing this grief and seeing the gentleness that this grief is handled and not read into, it, it actually convicted me a little bit of maybe I read back in the last chapter a little bit too strongly when I was reading through that conflict um, between Saul and between Samuel. Um, because I read a lot of anger in Samuel's words, especially when um, Saul goes to him and asks him in verse 25 to, uh, to come back with him, to come alongside of him. And Samuel, uh, in response, and when I would read it with the staff or with Chris in preparation of things, like I would read it as, um, again, more of a, an anger or rebuke. And, and Samuel responding to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And maybe I should have been treating that with a little bit more softness. Maybe it's a little bit more grief even in the confrontation. Maybe a little is, it would be a little bit more played out rightly as Saul going to Samuel and saying, return with me. And Samuel saying, oh, Saul, man, I won't be returning with you. I'm sorry to say it, but you've rejected God's word. And unfortunately, because of that, God has rejected you and he's called us to part our ways. Maybe there's something in the mix of it. Who knows? Grief is a weird thing. Grief gets expressed in all types of different ways, anger being one of them. One, it could be either the case. Well, we do know, even if we don't know fully how those words were shared, what we know by the end is there is Samuel marked with grief, and he carries that grief forward. 
and I think it's a note um, about Samuel's character of why he's grieving. I think he's grieving because Samuel was consumed with God's glory. It's when God's glory was tarnished, that's what grieved him. And perhaps what grieved him more was that glory was being tarnished by his own anointed one, the very one to preserve his glory. If Samuel wasn't concerned with God's glory, then I don't think there'd be any reason to grieve here. And yet we see Samuel continuing in grief. And here we are not even halfway through the first verse, and I was already struck with conviction this week in my study. Um, this is the kind of week that I've been having, even, not even getting through the first verse. Um, and some of it comes from, uh, truthfully, even more recently in our, um, in our dinner conversations at home. Jill's really good as a mom of asking those uh, leading questions and getting conversations starting. And one of the ones that she's been asking and, and kind of has been a little bit more of a routine now um, is some version along the lines of, um, you know, what, what was your hardest part of the day? Or something that I would cap that afterwards and say, well, what, was, what made you smile the most? What was the best part of your day? You know, and, and just leading into those questions so that our kids are talking. Again, she does that so well. And it occurred to me in the reflection of this that thinking about the concept of joy and of sorrow, thinking about the concepts of the emotions of crying um, or laughing with joy, maybe those are good litmus tests as well for our spiritual conditions and a good litmus test of where we stand in relationship with God. Because I wrote it like this as a confession to myself, for too often it is when I find myself smiling at the things that should make me sad or grieving over the things that God intends for my happiness. That's when I know there's something wrong with our relationship and it's on me. And I just encourage you this morning, if you find yourself, if you stop and you think, when was the last time that I delighted in the Lord with outward emoting joy? Or when was the time that I cried and grieved over my failures and sin and depravity and need for him? And if those answers don't come easily to you, then maybe it's a time to reflect and to go to him. Don't just harbor that against yourself, but take those emotions to him because he accepts them and allow him to either one, put you in that right relationship or restore you once again. But back to the passage. And don't worry, we won't be spending that much time on every half of the verse. We'll still get to lunch, I promise. But in response to Samuel's grief, God gives this joyous action for Samuel to take. He says this in, verse, in the second part of verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send to you Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. What a great command. I love the way this starts. It sounds so purposeful. It really sounds like something that would be uh, said at the beginning of an epic journey. Like this seems like this would be a good start to a Lord of the Rings type journey or something. Um, I don't know really what the application is today uh, of the, what would be our instruction from this command. Um, but man, I really tried. I really tried all this week uh, to think about it. Um, just by the nature of my role in here, um, you know, I'll have several people that I'll get a chance to meet with who share where they're at and what they're doing. And they always, you know, kind of end with some form of like, Paul, what do you think I should do? And in everyone that I ran into this week, I really thought, and I was tempted to just like, I know what you should do. You should go take your horn and fill it up with oil and go. That sounds epic. I don't know what to do with that, and it never seemed right, right or appropriate to actually say that, um, so I leave it to y'all. Maybe y'all can work it in with a uh, good exhort to your brother or sister in Christ, and if it works out well, come tell me, because I'd be fascinated. Um, but whatever it is, we, we have this uh, command here that it begins to be a shift, and it's supposed to be a shift marked against his grief, now presented with joy, because this is very exciting. This is great news. 
This is going to change Samuel's grief because God says, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. Very exciting. And already we should be cleaned in by two words, by one, where Jesse's from, from Bethlehem, and then two, that Jesse's being mentioned. Um, because right before the book of 1 Samuel, we have the book of Ruth. And in Ruth, if you were with us many years ago when we studied through it, Ruth starts in a very, very hopeless and despairing beginning. But by the end, we meet uh, the redeemer, Boaz, who comes in and redeems and rescues Ruth. And it is so hopeful. And it's not just hopeful for them and their story in the moment, but there's a hope that points forward uh, to God's process of redemption happening through their line. And what we would see here is now a couple... Um, um, generations later, now we're running back into a character from Bethlehem and a character named Jesse, who is in fact Ruth and Boaz's grandson. And even more exciting is from one of their grandson's kids, their great-grandkids, one of those boys is going to be named the next anointed king. I think there's similar excitement um, that's found uh, in who selects this king or why this king is selected here. Because the words that we had read in the ESV say it like this. It says, I, God's words, God, I have provided for myself. Other translations say, I choose for myself or I have selected for myself. And these are good translations. They really do fit and they make sense. Literally, the verb here though in Hebrew just means to see. In Hebrew, literally, we would read it as, I see for myself a king. Or I have seen for myself a king. This is important because this concept of seeing or looking is going to be on repetition about seven or eight times through this chapter alone. There's a main highlight here that we're going to need to run into this seeing and then gleaning. Why, why, are we, why is this being repeated? What are we supposed to learn from it? In fact, down in uh, verse 17, which hopefully we'll get to consider next week, um, we'll run into um, this same word translated um, as provided again with Saul's request. When Saul says, provide for me somebody to play music. And we'd actually see if we read it as sees, we would see it more clearly as a word picture of Saul's request and the servant's reply. Because it really would go, see now a man who can play for me. And then the response from the servant is, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse. And so again, it's this idea of sight that we want to we key into. Anytime it calls us to look or that somebody's looking. Because what we, what we saw with the last king was Saul was picked by people according to their sight. And now we see David being picked, not according to man's sight, but according to God's. Again, very exciting stuff. But Samuel isn't so excited yet. In fact, verse two, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Doesn't sound very exciting. And I think it's a valid question of Samuel. I don't think this is, again, to be read as Samuel is, it's a moment of weakness or a lack of, of faith or it's disobedience coming from Samuel. Namely, I think that because the Lord doesn't rebuke it, he just simply replies. He answers the question. Again, this is read very much like a conversation. Lord replies and says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. God tells Samuel to go and to anoint his king. Samuel states, uh, if I go, Saul is probably going to kill me. I won't be able to anoint a king. And God says, no, 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 don't worry. He won't kill you. Here's the plan. 
I think two quick notes about this plan. One, we should be seeing here the first foreshadowing of what we will see in Saul becoming more and more unhinged and unstable as we finish this book. Um, we've already seen him in Acts where he's been relatively a loose cannon, um, but here is really a pivotal place where Samuel himself is fearing of Saul to take his own life. That Saul apparently is being rash enough that Samuel feels threatened, that, he would, that even he, a prophet of God, would be killed by this mad king. So we'll see some foreshadowing that will come of this. And then two, I'll make a small side note, but I won't spend a ton of time in it. Um, there are some that make a bigger deal about this being uh, a question or a hard question to wrestle with. Is this God um, telling Samuel to be deceptive or to potentially lie, um, which of course wouldn't be a good thing and doesn't fit in his character? I don't think it's that case. I think God is simply expounding on his plan um, David will be anointed um, here privately, and this is how God is saying he wants that private anointing to look like. David will actually be anointed two more times publicly as king um, over the south of Israel and then over the entire nation of Israel, um, and we'll run into those later. But here's just the private ceremony to introduce him, to start it all off, uh, and this is how God says the plan's going to go. You're going to go tell him you're not going to be killed. This is what you're going to do. And again, there's a lot of people who expound a lot more on um, telling the truth and a partial truth not being untruth or um, a lying of the truth. And if you want to look more into that, there's plenty of stuff online. Just Google, did, Samuel tell, did God tell Samuel to lie? Um, and tons of resources are out there that walk through it. So I don't think we have to worry ourselves too much. But jumping back into verse 4, I think we get another amazing start to a verse. Um, a, a start to a verse that I would say is a huge credit of Samuel and of what the Lord is accomplishing in Samuel. Um, I talked uh, a couple months ago when I preached last on Samuel of some leadership styles of Samuel. And I think this perhaps is one of his greatest. Verse 4 just simply starts, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. I mean, how great. How great in such a short time. You know, Samuel is told by the Lord to go and do something. He questions the Lord. Is this really it? The Lord clarifies, says, yes, this is my plan. And then what does Samuel do? He, go and, he goes and obeys. How I wish this was more true of the pattern in my own life, that it would be that quick of my interactions between God. When he tells me, I know what I should, should be doing. And how often am I like, God, are you sure about that? And he goes, no, yeah, I'm sure. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but are you really, really sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm really, really sure. Oh, yeah, God, but what about this? Are you really, really, really sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm really, really sure. And then, okay, maybe, begrudgingly, I'll, I'll obey. That's, again, that's my confession. That's my short-sightedness. Samuel doesn't have that. Samuel has a much positive, uh, more positive example for us to learn from. God says it. Samuel questions. He clarifies, and Samuel obeys. He knows to obey God is always the right thing. So then the elders of the city come and meet him trembling and say, do you come peaceably? And he says, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel obeys. He goes to Bethlehem, probably at the city gates, probably at the first gathering in the courtyard of the city. Immediately when Samuel gets there, the elders are there waiting for him, heard he's coming, seen him coming, uh, and they are terrified. They are fearful. You might be thinking, well, that sounds a little bit odd so far in our story of, um, of 1 Samuel. Samuel, and all the other times, is normally has a great reputation, is well-received. It's an exciting thing when Samuel comes because the people are going to get to hear the word of the Lord. But you've got to remember back to our last chapter 
Um, what happened when Samuel took a different form, not just as a messenger of the Lord, but as an ex executioner of the Lord when he chopped up Agag? I imagine word has gotten out to these elders, uh, and they know what Samuel has just done. And now they see, they're standing at the gate waiting for him to come, and they see him walking up. And maybe they see in his belt, I'm just speculating, maybe they see in his belt his sacrificial knife that he's going to use for the sacrifice. And they're thinking, uh-oh, is that knife for us? Is this going to be another Agag thing? And so they're terrified. They ask, have you come in peace? And Samuel says, yeah, yeah, it's peace. This knife, yeah, it's not, not for you. Don't worry. Um, not for you yet. Be good. No, I don't know. Maybe he didn't say that. Um, but he says, this isn't for you. Uh, instead, I'm just coming here to sacrifice. You're welcome to come to that uh, sacrifice with, with me. I'm going to invite Jesse and his sons uh, along as well, which is also a very normal thing, especially when it comes to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, because we oftentimes just think of uh, the burnt offering, the offering for atonement, um, and consider that as the only one of, uh, one of the sacrifices. And in that one, it is commanded that all of the animal must be consumed, lest it's skinned after it's been skinned. And all of it is consumed up before the Lord. But there's many other types of offerings of blessing or of thanksgiving um, that actually prescribe different things with the handling of the meat. Not only then the best parts were still uh, consumed by the Lord and burnt up for him, but oftentimes other parts were taken uh, and provided for the priest um, as a way of, of payment or provision for him, or is invited, to, is celebrated together and eaten as a family, or even with the community being invited in there. Um, and so essentially what is happening here is Samuel's gone to uh, give this sacrifice. He's invited the elders. He's invited Jesse and his boys to come to the barbecue, to feast together on the sacrifice, and to please the Lord with what they're offering. So the elders are pleased here. Samuel goes off to find Jesse, to consecrate him and his sons to join him in the sacrifice. Um, but now we see in verse 6 another comparison of using sight, man's sight or God's sight. Because Samuel does this interesting thing of applying the same measure of using his sight in the same way that was used by the people in, anointing, in the choosing, choosing and anointing of Saul as king, as prince. Verse 6 says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But when the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Now again, I don't really know why um, we get this little insert about Samuel um, thinking that uh, being impressed by the first son brought before him and being impressed by his grand stature and his appearance, his height, um, and the way that he looks. Uh, I, I maybe again at best read grief back into this. Maybe this is Samuel still grieving over Saul. So his best thing to do is to at least pick the guy who kind of reminds him of Saul, but hopefully will do the job a lot better. Uh, I don't know. But what is clear um, is that God is revealing a key concept about how he chooses a king, and he chooses it not by that outward appearance, but by the appearance of the heart. God sees what man doesn't see, the heart. You know, when we relate to this, we know this. Even the prophet Jeremiah says this about our own condition, our own ability to judge even our own hearts. We can't even do that well, let alone judge somebody else's heart, another man's heart. 
In, verse seven, in uh, chapter 17, verse 9 of Jeremiah, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no man. No man can understand his own heart. But who can? The answer does come. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God rightly sees the heart and God makes his choice here. Now, most commentators move straight into um, this proclamation of, of, that God has declared about how he sees the uh, heart of a man and thus has made another selection. Um, and most of them jump straight into then going back to what was prophesied or said that it was, this is the fulfillment um, back in uh, chapter 13 when the Lord said he would do this very thing uh, in uh, removing Saul and re replacing another. Um, and some go back there and say in that uh, section, it is, it's uh, clear that the Lord says he will appoint a king, a man after his own heart. And so they say, this is the appointment. God sees the heart. He's going to appoint a man after his own heart. And so the application moves on with David uh, and all the qualification David has being one of a man known by a uh, heart after God and then spills through and spells that out. But really, I was also reading in, a, um, in another commentary by a man named uh, Dr. John uh, Woodhouse. And it was an interesting commentary he has on 1 Samuel, looking for a leader, he titles it, um, where it, he makes it very clear in this passage that this statement from God is not about David, because we haven't even been introduced to David yet. This statement here in this chapter is all about God. He actually essentially frames God's sight, again, this themes of seeing that goes throughout this chapter, as God's sight being God's point of view. And we always know God's point of view is right, and it is right because it is according to his will and according to his purposes. And so um, Dr. Woodhouse actually offers a more literal uh, translation of the Hebrew here in the second half of verse 7, and he would actually say it as, he changes the pronoun, and he says, but the Lord looks according to his heart. That it's the Lord's heart that's, that's being valued here. And that this is his choice that he's being made. Essentially, he's reading in verse 7, man sees according to man's heart, but God sees according to God's heart. Woodhouse actually goes so far as reading back to um, what I mentioned in 1 Samuel 13 and says that also isn't about David either um, because the preposition that's used there um, when it said speaking to Saul in chapter 13 verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That preposition after can also mean according to or alongside. And so it could be there that this is, he sought out a man according to his own heart, not according to David's. And the Lord had commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Again, here Woodhouse changes this argument. And while I'm a little bit weary to go back and to, and to make this drastic statement that David isn't a man after God's own heart, I think that that still is an appropriate characteristic. Um, I'm a little weary of, of Dr. Uh, Woodhouse because he's like the only one uh, who does this. Uh, and so even though he's Australian and it sounds really cool when he presents it and talks about it, uh, he really is the only one. I never found anybody else who was kind of backing up on that. And so I tend to think it's a good point, um, but maybe he takes it a little bit too far, uh, and it is appropriate to still leave David with that title of a man after God's own heart. But what I most appreciated is I think it is very appropriate here in this section where we are in this scripture in chapter 16 to say this is about God's choosing. It is not about David's heart being the qualification of the choice. 
Let me say it like in a different way. It's not that David has earned the title of king because he has worked hard enough and earned for himself a heart after God. No, this is still God's work. Any amount of heart after God that is present in David is an attribute to God's work in David's life. It's not David's to take credit of. This is God's choice. It's God's heart that he sees. It's God's heart that he has imparted into David and thus has made his selection for his next anointing. So the Lord is the only one who can rightly judge the heart, and he has chosen David. We haven't gotten there yet, because Samuel then, all the sons have been brought before him, all the seven of them, uh, and the Lord reveals to Samuel that it's not any one of these. And again, I read it uh, with a little bit more uh, questioning, emphatic emphasis in his voice. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? I feel like he's probably like, uh, did I miss something? Did I get the word revealed from the Lord wrong? Are you sure all your sons are here? And Samuel's questioning is answered very quickly because then Jesse says, no, actually, I didn't bring all my sons. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send out and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Again, I read that um, particular inflection because I think Samuel is like, wait, what's going on? Um, but really, more tragic is the details, at least the absence of details here, and um, why Jesse didn't bring David. Now, at best, and I'm doing, again, we're doing a lot of supposition, but I want to try to put us into this passage to rightly understand and wrestle through it. At, at best, it's just... Um, it's just Jesse being pragmatic. Well, you told me to bring my sons, and I brought all the ones who weren't busy. I left my youngest because he was out tending the sheep, so I didn't bother him because he had a job to do. So I brought all the others here. At best, that's it. Um, but maybe at worst, it reflects some kind of broken relationship between David and Jesse, his father. I mean, it's really interesting that he doesn't invite his David. He invites only seven sons. So maybe there's a little bit of favoritism here. Maybe he favors seven, or he only thinks they're the qualified ones. He doesn't really like David, so he doesn't even bring him. But most tragically in this, I find it interesting that Jesse doesn't even name David. He just calls him the youngest. David's name means beloved. And wouldn't it be tragic if Jesse doesn't even say David's name because he doesn't love him? I mean, we certainly run into the Psalms when David's old ha own hands, um, attention there uh, that he has with his family. Maybe it is a broken relationship. I think the good news is that even, um, even if it is a broken relationship uh, here, there is a lesson for us to glean from it. Um, Charles Swindoll, again, in his commentary, I think just put it well. Again, I would recommend, pick it up. It's a great book on David and on his life. He says this, it's remarkable, isn't it, how Jesse reveals two very common mistakes that parents make. Number one, he didn't have an equal appreciation for all his children. And number two, he failed to cultivate a mutual self-respect among them. Jesse saw his youngest as nothing more than the one who tended to his sheep. I think there's something for us as parents to learn there as well. But then in all irony, we get this really interesting uh, then statement too, right after God just saying and, and uh, correcting Samuel and saying, man looks at man's outward appearance, I look at the heart, so I'm going to make the choice based on the heart, my heart that I put in this man. 
And then yet he fills in and says, but David's appearance was fair, having beautiful eyes, and he was relatively handsome. Uh, one of the articles that I, that I ran into from a, a pastor jokingly uh, says, this is here so that as Christians, we don't misapply the, the previous command um, that gets rebuke uh, towards the one that God only, um, God isn't going to use uh, the handsome and the fair and the tall. Um, and so we don't want the misapplication of Christian today, go forth and try to be short and ugly. And then God will use you. Like, no, maybe this is why this is in here. Um, but yet at the same time, if you are short and ugly, it doesn't rule you out either because it is your heart. And I am deliberately looking down at my notes to not make eye contact with anybody in this room. I am not speaking to anyone in particular, just in general. But we know that it is the Lord's uh, that chooses by the heart and he chooses David and David is anointed again in verse 12, middle half. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I mean, again, so interesting here that the first person to introduce David by name is through God's word revealed, not from his father. And I know many of us probably have, we have burdens and things we carry with our parents or with our fathers. And maybe David carries those and we can relate to that uh, in him as well. But the good news is, is even where our earthly fathers may fail us, our heavenly father won't. And our heavenly father has chosen us and has chosen David for that day. And it says that the spirit of the Lord falls or rushes on David that day, but unlike Saul, who either that spirit leaves or he squelches that spirit's voice, Unlike Saul, the spirit comes onto David that day and remains with him moving forward. And again, in closing application, I was, um, I was tempted, uh, like almost every other sermon, to finish with something along the lines of, are we, uh, do we have hearts like David after God's own heart? And again, I was probably con- contemplating spending more time in application there because again, back to um, Dr. Chuck's book on this, he says, what does it mean, great words, very profound, to define and apply this, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Seems to me it means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says go to the right, you go to the right. When he says stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. And if that's the application you need to walk away with, if that pricks your spirit, um, then by all means, listen to the spirit and give credit to um, Dr. Swindoll about it. But maybe because it's, I've been reading also, and then more of Dr. Woodhouse in this, and I wanted to focus more on the application, at least in my own conviction, of God's choosing in this moment, not my earning. Because it is clear, and we've run into this in Scripture, I mean, it is clear, God clearly chooses Israel to be his people. God here clearly chooses David. He clearly chooses Bethlehem to be a part of the story. And he chooses David to step up and to be uh, an important figure here, a ruler of his people. And yet, it's clear the same God who made these choices makes another, time, another choice, some maybe about 1,000 years later, to bring another person out of Bethlehem and to choose him. For David is not just a precursor or a type of a mess- messianic figure, um, he is, he's, it's not just the man that we would have chosen, but another man who gets chosen for us um, comes. As Isaiah 53 puts it, it reminds us, it says, 
and also about this man, Jesus, there was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One looked at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. And through his bruises, we get healed. It's Isaiah 53, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in the message. Because it is clear that there is a choice. God chose Jesus as a method of salvation for all who would believe. And I don't know the things that make you feel unworthy about that. I don't know the things that you struggle with of feeling unworthy to be chosen by God. I don't know if you think that you just messed up too many times or that you'll never be a good enough person. You're not good enough for him to choose you or use you. You may think of yourself too poor or too broken or too worthless. Those may be your feelings, but if those feelings are keeping you from turning to God, then there's a wrong application of your feelings because God knows that and he chooses you. He says, yes, you are too poor. Yes, you are too broken. Yes, you are worthless, but I choose that. I choose your heart because with me and my choice of your heart, I can fix those things. I can show you what worth is. I can show you what it is to be fixed. I can show you what it is to be healed because I don't look at you the way other men look at you. Men look at you and they see that. I look at you and I see a heart that I can save. I look at you and see a heart that I love. I look at you and I see your need for me as your savior. So he loves you and he's chosen you as, and he has chosen a savior for you. And so really with our time of imitation and Colson and Jeff are going to lead us in another song. Um, I do ask that you do the diligence with whatever the Spirit has prompted um, from the reading of his word today. Um, if there is a wrong relationship that you need to put right, um, even with somebody in this room or with a family, I pray that you take that to the Lord and ask him to do it. If there's healing that, he, that you need to be able to forgive somebody, I pray that you seek him and his provision to do that. Or maybe you have thought about these things and you think about what has grieved me. When you think about what, where have I found joy in the Lord's doing? And if that's a sign that maybe you're like, I don't know if I have that relationship with him. And you never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then don't let today go by um, without doing that because that's what he wants. And if you don't know what that looks like, you can come forward, you can ask one of us, you can ask whoever brought you here. Or maybe you just need to gather with somebody and pray. And we always have members at the right side of the room, faithful and willing to do that. Or then lastly, maybe you've met with Lance and the Welcome Home team and, and you're like, yeah, I, I, need, I need to be chosen and I need to stand alongside this church as fellow chosen ones to remind myself of that truth. And if you want to join the church and make church membership known, now's the time to do it. But whatever it is, however you need to respond, I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, you can take, again, whatever posture that it is. But before we sing, I'm going to close with Hess's very words, old poet. God looks not at the outward form but what it's in the heart. The beauty he is pleased to see, his spirit can impart.